1: Home Abstract and Title Company was founded in 1867 and is the oldest company still operating in McLennan County. Home Abstract is comprised of a team of honest, friendly, hardworking professionals dedicated to providing both commercial and residential real estate clients with the highest level of communication and service. Their team is committed to working hard and building and maintaining strong relationships because transactions are so much more than just deals. They are clients deserving of the courtesy care and respect that Home Abstract and Title Company is known for. Visit Home Abstract and Title Company at homeabstract.com the, and and live
2: the Waco History Podcast is sponsored by Brotherwell Brewery on historic Bridge Street in Waco. Cross the
1: Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Brazos and Waco, I'm safe when I reach
2: 72. All right, Stephen, we're back in the studio,
1: and you have another high caliber guest. I do. I've been trying to get our guest into town for a few weeks. Okay. Uh, she, she's an expert that has published on the Brazos River. She's an expert in many areas. We could talk to her about a lot of different things, but I thought I'd have somebody in to begin to talk about the Brazos River. And uh, Dr. Kenling Archer has written a history and done years of research. Her book is Unruly Waters, A Social Environmental History of the Brazos River. Mm. But she's done years of research on the Brazos. This is something we haven't talked about. We talked a little bit with Dr. Yelderman, but we haven't talked deeply about the Brazos. Get it? Yeah. it was. Pun, I get it. Deeply, intended. Yeah. <laughs> Deep and wide. And so I thought I would bring Kenna in to visit <laughs> with us. So, Kenna, thanks for joining us.
0: No, thank you. I'm glad to be here.
2: So, Unruly Waters. So why did you choose that title for the book?
0: Well, to be honest, I felt like... It was not my title to begin with. Okay. (laughs) Let me just say that. I really struggled to find a title that just sort of summed up the nature of this river in fewer than 2,000 words. (laughs) And so I looked for something that most closely defined what this river had meant. And it had really been unruly. Mm -hmm. It wasn't always bad. It wasn't always good. But it just was never constant. It was just a constantly changing source of economic, political, cultural change. It was just unruly.
2: Brazos is a Spanish word meaning arms, right? Yes. yes. So how did the Brazos get its name?
0: The fuller title is El Rio de los Prados de Dios, which means river of the arms of gods. And so the story goes, there was a party of Spanish explorers that were lost (laughs) and wandering around southeast Texas and desperate for water. And they prayed and they stumbled upon this river and they named it in honor of what they saw as divine providence and that's been shortened over time to brazos no one's quite sure though uh, if this is really the river they're talking about because early maps confused on more than one occasion actually the brazos and the colorado and numerous journals did the same they kind of flip-flopped for a while Mm. which river and so for a while you would have to transpose basically the colorado and the brazos Um, but it is definitely in colorado you know uh, red River, um, Red Colored River. So it has a, a name of Spanish origin as well. Mm-hmm.
1: So we could be living on the Colorado River, actually.
0: We could be living on the Colorado River. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I think I'm going to refer to it by its full name whenever someone asks me. From now I on. think you should. <laughs> that, it, that'll really make you <laughs> appear intelligent. Yeah.
0: Well, you can also tell them there were missions on the Brazos River. I probably don't know that either.
2: What about the Brazos River is interesting to you and why did you choose to really study it like this?
0: One of the things that most fascinates me with the Brazos is that I can see its imprints, its fingerprints all over the region. Uh, And certainly in Waco, I see the legacy of this river on the way that the city has developed. And what initially drew me though, before I started finding these thumbprints, it's just I looked around the Brazos, I grew up alongside it, I grew up in Houston, I, you know, I drove up it. I was here in Waco for a long time, and I just looked around and was amazed at how little development there seemed to be
1: mm, that's along, true.
0: along the Brazos. And I was just interested, why, why had we not tried to develop this river more? And now that's actually not the quite the right story. We did try mm-hmm. over and over. But I was initially drawn, why don't you see dams every 20 miles? Why don't you see locks every 15 miles? Why is this river so unruly still?
2: Hmm. And so when people ask you to, you know, Tell me about the Brazos River, where do you start? (laughs)
0: When people ask me about the Brazos River, they're usually coming to me because there's been a flood. And they come to me, they call, they send me emails, and they say, why is this river flooding? It's 2019, it's 2015, why haven't we done anything about it? And so, normally when I talk about it, I'm talking about the fact that, okay, there's actually a really, really long history here. You had 23 dam projects, you had competing six dam projects, you had a one dam project, a one dam project. It's not that people haven't tried. So when I talk about the Brazos, I start there. These many, many, many attempts at development because that's really how it most affects people today. They forget about it often when it's behaving, but when the (laughs) river becomes unruly again, suddenly I'm very popular and people are calling, wondering why this age old story is sort of reasserting itself and disrupting our lives. We don't like to be disrupted. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) Maybe some more basic stuff that I just am maybe ignorant about. Where does it start and where does it end?
0: That is a great question, actually, because it starts near Lubbock. And most people don't realize that it Uh. goes deep in the Texas Panhandle. Just how long it is is debated. But if you want to use the USGS, the Geological Survey, and I do, I trust them, then it's about 1,250 river miles long. So it starts up near Lubbock, it curves around, and then it dives to the south and it empties out in the Gulf of Mexico, about 50 miles from Galveston. So, mm-hmm. not too far. And it, it's a pretty spectacular entrance it makes into the Gulf of Mexico. It's not a bay like most of the other major rivers. And so, it just sort of dives straight in this nice little muddy, sort of Mississippi River style exit with all the debris, nice little sandbank. Looks so promising to navigation and then isn't.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what what makes it so unruly? You, You talked about all the failed dam projects. Why did they fail?
0: Well, largely they failed because people's expectations just did not line up with what they could actually accomplish on the river. So, for example, that river flooded like every year. I mean, like every year there was some sort of small flood, and that's great for a farmer. It deposits the nice alluvial soils. That is really good, unless you're trying to live there. If you're trying to make a permanent presence there, that is not good. For example, these people in the lower part of the river, they wanted to stop those floods. You can't build a big dam Hmm. on the lower sections of the Brazos because the soils, they shrink and they swell and they're really unstable. It doesn't support it. So if you move further upstream, In Waco, for example, they're all about navigation. In the early 1900s, they build locks and dams. Same things. The soils can't support the structures. They literally collapse. So now you have remnants of the locks and dams that are literally, you know, half a mile off the river because the river has shifted course so much. This one lock and dam near Waco was lock and dam number eight. And I I read the reports that one of the employees wrote to his supervisors. And in one year, he reported there was eight inches of water in the river. Eight inches of water. You're not going to get a lot of navigation with yeah. that. The next year, he reported a flood that t- did $20,000 in damage, which is the equivalent of like $480,000 today. Yeah. And then the year after that, he reported that the soils had collapsed in the bank on the east bank and that part of the lock had just fallen into the river. They faced the same problems with the suspension bridge. They faced the same problems with the dam. They faced the same problems with the canals. You just have these soils that take on very different characteristics in very different places and don't necessarily abide by what we want it to do.
2: Is this uncharacteristic of other rivers in the area? Are they more tameable or is it kind of like a Texas thing?
0: That's a great question. So there is something unique about the Brazos, but there's also something very, very characteristic about it, which is why I love studying this river. It's a microcosm for other rivers, but it's also its own unique study because every river that's more than, you know, a couple miles long is going to have some diversity along its length. What makes the Brazos so unique is it's just so stinking big. It is the 11th longest river in the United States, and it's the longest river to be in a single state because Texas it's huge. is huge. <laughs> so if you were to go to New England and you had a river this size, you'd have five states teaming up together with federal support to take care of it. But in the case of Texas, we look at it, it's just a river, Mm -hmm. and I think we forget how big it is. The size of Texas ensures that you have more diversity in the state as well. There's not too many states where you're going to have the dryness and the aridity and the mountains of El Paso and the plants and the species and the five inches of water a year, but also a place like Beaumont in Houston where you might get 50 inches of rain in a year and it's swampy. You have to account for so much diversity. Scientists, they measure diversity in different ways. You can count species. You can count vegetative zones. You can do any number of things. But by any metric, Texas is in the top few states in terms of diversity. That complicates things. The Trinity and the Rio Grande are very different rivers. The Colorado and the Sabine are very different rivers, but the Brazos bisects the state. I mean, it's like right smack dab in the middle, and it starts in the canyon lands that are arid and ends in the swamps. And in the middle, it goes through the Balcones, it goes through the prairies, it has a little bit of all of the different vegetative zones, a little bit of all of the different geographies and topographies, and that's not something you see on the other rivers. The Colorado, a little bit. Mm -hmm. But the Trinity, it's mostly through, like, the forest and then the swamps, there's not as much diversity. Even the Colorado River, not our Colorado, like the big Colorado of the West, it's huge, but think about what it flows through. It's, it's all generally the West, mm-hmm. the arid West. You don't have to think about the geological diversity as much with many other rivers.
1: One of the things I remember you writing about was that made the Brazos interesting is, it's not the most important river, we wouldn't say that, yeah. But we would. But you made the point that it's been all the ways that you would try to use a river, they've tried to use the Brazos <laughs> in those ways. Tried, right? And so, yeah. so that idea of microcosm, can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it would be a very Texas thing for me to do to try to say this was the most important river. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly it is an important river. It's been very important culturally. I mean, there are songs about it, right? Cross the river at Waco, cross the Brazos at Waco. There's a Swedish trombonist. Oh, wait, a great song. <laughs> yeah. There's a Swedish trombonist in Swedish, in Sweden, that recorded a song about the Brazos. So there is something iconic about it. You
1: got to find that song. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: you do. It's a great song. Let's
1: see if we can play it after this episode.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, it, it does act as sort of a bridge for the different types of Projects that you see, so for example, in the southeastern United States, uh, along many of those rivers, like the Mississippi River, for example, for a long time it was all about navigation, and it was all about locks, and it was all about barges and dams and canals, and you don't see that as much in western rivers. And then in western rivers like the Colorado or the Columbia, it tends to be more about big dams. I mean, big dams, and part of that's the timing, right? About when you're settling mm-hmm. these areas. But on the Brazos, you have it all. You have canals, you have jetties, you have ports, you have dams, you have locks. You even have proposals to use nuclear technology to bomb out reservoirs. I mean, you name it, (laughs) you've got it on the Brazos River. Yes, that did not go anywhere, fortunately for our current health. (laughs) But you do see a little bit of everything sprinkled into this watershed.
2: So let's talk about how the Brazos really affects Waco, since this is the Waco History Podcast. (laughs) What are some of the early uses of it? How did the people interact with it?
0: There's absolutely no question that Waco is where it is because of the Brazos River. Even before it was platted out in 1849, right, you know, March 1st, they they officially established this town. And even before then, you had groups congregating here. You had Jesse Sutton here. You had George Bernard and George Bernard Erath. You had Neil McClennan, but even before that, you had the Cherokee Indians who moved into the area on the east bank of the river, probably around 1830. There's a little bit of disagreement. You had the Waco Indians who probably around 1772, 1773, sometime in that period, moved into the area. They lived at the confluence of the Brazos and Bosque, so up near Cameron Park. And what was drawing all of these groups here was largely the same thing. You had the great defensive position, if that's what you were looking for, on the West Bank. You also had the higher elevations that protected from the floods. But if you were into agricultural, and everyone was, right, to some extent, you had really fertile soils in this area. But perhaps most importantly, you had natural springs, which provided a great source of drinking water, and you had a river ford. You could cross this river, And there weren't many places where you could say that if you've seen the Brazos, and this is the Waco history project, (laughs) so hopefully most people have, it's a big river. Mm -hmm. Those bridges, like the Waco Bridge, the Washington Bridge, the Suspension Bridge, they average 450 feet in length, which tells you this is a big, big river. Unless it's a time of drought, you're not going to cross it easily. Mm -hmm. And there's only a handful of fords that we know of. There's some disagreement here. Certainly... There was a Ford, a natural crossing up near where Possum Kingdom Lake is, where Lake Whitney is, down near Marlin Falls, the falls, and then here in Waco at the suspension bridge. And so people naturally congregated, were funneled into this place, and it was just a natural site to lay down a town. Because you could have chosen 15 miles north and 20 miles to the west, and you could have put a town there. There were settlements there. There were land grants there, there were deeds there, but that didn't make as much sense. And so you see the early founding fathers of this town being very, very intentional about recognizing there's an economic boon here. People are crossing anyway. We might as well get their money. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's, let's get their money as they cross through town and use our ferries, visit our, you know, businesses, maybe even decide to stay here. They're selling off lots as well. And then obviously the farming potential In a lot of ways, the Brazos is considered the Western boundary of the antebellum slave culture and that plantation culture because you still had such rich, rich soils on the East Bank, not the West. But you can do a lot of farming, and people did. And so there was rich agricultural activity here. And you see that right with the Cotton Palace Mm -hmm. later on um, Mm -hmm. sort of being the culmination of how important that agriculture is from day one.
1: Yeah, we talked about the uh, Civil War last week. We talked about secession in the Civil War last week. So, just this, this idea of uh, we've gone back and forth was Waco is Western or Waco is Southern. Oh, yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. That endless debate. What is Waco? What is Texas for that matter? Yeah. I teach a Texas history class, and one of the things we talk about is that Texas is very different from other Western states, other Southern states. It has multiple frontiers, it has a Southern frontier in the eastern half of the state where you had cotton and plantations and slaves and everything that we associate culturally with the South. But you have the West with Comanche Indians and Plains Indians and cowboys and shoot 'em ups and everything we associate there. And then we have a southern frontier we just forget about that is more Hispanic in its culture and more closely associated with Mexico, with Tejanos, with... Uh, citrus agriculture Mm. it's like just very very different and that's one of the things I argue in my book is that the Brazos River is a bridge in some ways a western river and a southern river and that's part of the reason why people have such a difficult time developing it do you take the southern approach with barges and navigation they sure tried Waco had a baseball team in the early 1900s called the Waco Navigators (laughs) (laughs) That's a dream (laughs) but it's a very real dream for a lot of people
2: So why doesn't navigation work on the Brazos?
0: They sure try. That is the main purpose behind the lock and dam project of the early 19-teens. And that's the Army Corps of Engineers coming in. People disagree on how many locks they wanted to build, but eight seems to be like the most commonly agreed upon number. That's what I've seen in my research. And they weren't trying to build locks and dams along the whole length from Waco to the Gulf, because part of it was navigable. Not easily. Not consistently, but you could go maybe 100 miles, 125 miles, 250 on like a really good day when the river was running high. And so what they wanted to do was put in these big lock and dam structures. And so for people that may not know how that works, it's like when you use a series of gates to close behind the river and artificially raise it up. So Mm -hmm. like stair-stepping. Right. Like the Panama Canal. Yeah, exactly. Or the Erie Canal. Mm And so they wanted to build these locks and dams at places where you had natural impediments, like the falls. There's actually multiple falls. There's two falls. Or where you had a submerged limestone that wasn't necessarily a fall but was causing issues. And so the problem here Or one of the problems was that on one hand, the West Bank and the East Bank of the Brazos River have very different geologies, especially in the middle section of the Brazos, which is where they were targeting this project. So if you look around in Waco, you've got Cameron Park on the west bank and then on the east bank it it, it drops significantly in elevation and you're back down into the floodplains. you have to account for that when you're building a lock and dam structure and they they didn't they didn't know enough about the geology to account the right way and so again you might be able to anchor your lock and dam in some good bedrock on one side of the river but you're not going to anchor it the same way on the other side and then even if you do anchor it Rivers change courses, especially rivers that flow through the type of soils. And, you know, you could get into the details of clays and loams, and we won't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But the Brazos... I know, <laughs> that, that was the point where my editor said, cut, yeah, cut, yeah. <laughs> cut.
1: You got 30 pages on loam here, we gotta get
0: Yes, going. cut, put it in the footnotes. You just have rivers more prone to movement, and mm-hmm. so that's when you get Oxbow Lakes and where you get the bins, and we have some great bins, right? Where the Brazos River just doubles back on itself and the river's shifting. So even when you do build the lock, you don't have any guarantee that it won't be isolated away from the river. And then because the rainfall is so inconsistent here, You would have years, like I said earlier, where there's 18 inches of water in the river. And there's some great stories of old time Wacoans walking across the river and not getting even the cuff of their pants (laughs) dry, which is horrifying, Mm -hmm. horrifying to think about. And then you have years, obviously, where the river ran so high that it was nearly toppling Mm -hmm. uh, the bridges. And so for all those reasons, there are others. For example, trees, they tend to fall (laughs) over time. They die when they do they fall into the river. They create new issues. You've got a lot of sediment in the Brazos. That builds up. That sedimentation could be an issue. It is an issue over time that you may not have to account for it in 1913, but you do have to account for it in 1915. So you've got all these geological variables, but you know money. You've got mm-hmm. money variables, too, because the cost of these proposals, they just skyrocket. Mm when you keep having to rebuild after every flood. 1910s is a bad time for floods in Waco. There's major floods in 1913, 1916, 1918. It's just a hard time. And that's exactly when they're trying to build these locks and dams. And so the prices skyrocket. People aren't even using those sections of the rivers that have been cleared of trees. It's kind of just a convergence of problems here
1: Mm -hmm. as part of that there weren't any major urban centers up the brazos in other words they're not trying to get to a dallas or they're not trying to get to a san antonio or something like that as far as the capital that would be be available to pour into it
0: that's certainly part of it except that it's also true that there wasn't as big of a gap yet between waco and some of the other major cities dallas Mm -hmm. is certainly growing Austin is beginning to grow. Mm-hmm. San Antonio is growing. But they've not yet reached that point where, you know, Waco is being left behind and, and Dallas is 2 million people larger, right? Um, in the 1910s, Waco, it's, it's not at its height, and it, it's not experiencing the growth maybe of the 1860s, 1870s, when you had the Chisholm Trail funneling traffic mm-hmm. through Waco. That was a boon. And, again, that was the river. They came through mm-hmm. this area because they needed to cross the river here. But 1910s, Waco is still growing. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is that it's not a big enough urban center to warrant the types of costs. And if you look downstream, what major city was going to benefit? You know, Navasota, Marlin, Hearn, those aren't major centers either. So Waco alone is not enough of a pool, especially when you do have nearby urban centers like Dallas and the Trinity is more navigable just naturally. It does lend itself that way a little bit. It gets a little bit less attention sometimes, but you do have other outlets. Obviously, the railroads are in by that point as well, and it's just not worth trying to fight the current here, which is why all of a sudden you see Waco papers publishing things like, oh, this river was never navigable. What are you trying to say? We never said that. It's a total reversal in the 1920s.
2: So it's kind of like a combination of all of the variables that make the Brazos what it is today, where it's kind of untamed because the soil and the fact there weren't major urban centers on there and the railroads come. So it's not needed as much. So those are all the kind of the reasons why it is looking like it's looking right now.
0: Yeah, that that's a good summation. And originally when the railroads came, they actually supported river development. I mean, now we think of it as this like great competition, this epic battle, and it, it does turn into that. And the railroads really do hurt navigation efforts in the long run. But initially, It is to the benefit of the railroads to get this river navigable because this is a big state. You're not going to wire the whole state with railroad lines and you're not going to do it quickly, especially lower downstream along the Brazos. The railroads are some of the greatest advocates for river development. If you can just get it close to Galveston, we can do the rest. But that just is not going to last long, that friendship, that cooperation. And so, like you said, that, that does play a role as well. Why bother trying to get over multiple falls, multiple stream banks with a river that doesn't seem to want to be tamed when you can just send it up to Dallas, which is a more important urban center, has greater links to the gulf, has greater links to the outside world via railroads and just seems more promising.
1: Well, the the story of attempted navigation is a shorter one than the story of flood control <laughs> attempts. <laughs> Uh, along the Brazos. And so can you take us through that a little bit, this idea of how do you address this issue of this river that refuses to be tamed and consistent with regard to its flow?
0: For the first maybe 60, 70 years at a minimum, it is navigation. In fact, it's pretty interesting. The Texas collection, as you know, has outstanding collections. I basically lived there for eight years. (laughs) (laughs) They got tired of me being there. And I found some references, only one or two, to the idea that, I mean, Stephen F. Austin himself, when, when he is in Texas, he's looking at the Brazos River, because he, he famously sort of plants his colony, right, like right on the Brazos. From his earliest impressions, there's some indication that he recognized the potential there, but also the unruliness. I found one reference to a letter where he's like, we need to do something with this. It, it's a long transition there, but it's really 1930s, where you begin to see the shifting emphasis. And if you had to pick a defining moment, it's the flood of 1936. Now, you already have Possum Kingdom by then. You already have the Brazos River Authority having been formed. But they're not explicitly about flood control. And Possum Kingdom is meant to be part of a broader project. But even though the direction has been shifting and the winds have been shifting already towards flood control, that flood of 1936 was significant. Because, as I said, the failure of the Lock and Dam project, it did sort of prompt people to reevaluate, but there was no denying the damage that that flood had done. And you already had this proposal for 12 or 13 large-scale dams that the Brazos River Authority had put forth. And just across the Brazos River Valley, people were convinced that that flood would not have happened without Whitney Dam or with the Whitney Dam. You would not have had this flood if you had had Whitney Dam in place, mm-hmm. that was the prevailing opinion, and so it really solidified on the changes. Which you may changes. disagree with, right? I definitely disagree yeah. with. <laughs> oh, interesting <laughs> controversy. Yeah. Yeah. There is famously 1976. You, you have most of the Brazos River dams fully completed by that point, and the rains were so intense in 1976 that the floodwaters breached Possum Kingdom Dam. Mm-hmm. Now, you definitely can argue, and people do, and they have a right to do so. They're not wrong, (laughs) that these dams, they do lessen the effects of the floods. There's no question. I mean, so having Possum Kingdom with Whitney, with De Cordova, with any number of dams, Mm -hmm. it does ensure that the floodwaters are not felt as severely Mm -hmm. as they once were. But it's very problematic also to say this one dam would have done it. Because even today, we still see that sometimes the waters, they do breach those dams. My favorite stories are just the long durée, as historians Mm -hmm. like to say. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the suspension bridge, just how important was that natural river ford? Because the suspension bridge is, most people think, at the site of the primary ford in this area. There's a couple of smaller ones, but that is the primary ford that people used when they were crossing with their cows or their their persons or their family or whatever and the Waco Bridge Company you know built the suspension bridge they operated it as a toll bridge initially which was wildly unpopular (laughs) (laughs) to do that to get around that people continued trying to ford the river by themselves and so what did the Waco Bridge Company do they bought up the land even more around the bridge to try to, like, cut off access <laughs> mm, to, the, <laughs> to, Ford area. to yeah. the Ford area. My, my husband's a lawyer. I like to kid him about, you know, skeezy lawyers and <laughs> their tactics. But this was an, a moment that kind of felt skeezy to a lot of people, and it just came off with the wrong vibe. So not necessarily good pleasant memory that I yeah. like to tell people about. But, I, but interesting. Interesting, yeah. It just points to just how difficult it is. To do anything with this river. There's also in terms of the river defying just sort of what we want to do with it. There was a canal project in the 1850s that was supposed to link Galveston to the Brazos River and it did. They built it in the 50s. It was completed in 1854. They built it again later on. They had to build it again because it kept filling in with sedimentation and so at one point in the 1890s there was 18 inches 18 inch clearance in the canal linking Galveston and Brazos at which point all the newspapers just sort of the editors threw their hands up like what are we supposed to do with 18 inches of water in this canal that <laughs> <laughs> cost us? so those are my favorite s- stories I'm an environmental historian I came from this through the scientific side so anytime I see the Brazos flexing her muscles I'm like yeah <laughs> yeah I like it
1: <laughs> I was talking to someone about rainfall levels last year And how high they were, even Mm -hmm. higher than 36, which is this monster flood we have along the Brazos in 36. Mm. This network of dams that the Brazos River Authority envisions, of course, doesn't, that full network doesn't happen. Can you talk a little bit about maybe compromises are made and what eventually is put in place?
0: Yeah, so one of the problems that you see with the dam projects is that you have competing dam proposals. It's primarily the Brazos River Authority that people associate with the dams on this river. And they they do propose many of them, build many of them, manage many of them. But you have the Bureau of Reclamation Mm -hmm. that proposes some dam projects. You certainly have the Army Corps of Engineers coming in as well. You have individual cities that build smaller dams. They're not building, you know, Possum Kingdom, but you have some smaller dams as well. And you have so many agencies that are operating... In the brazos river valley and in some cases at the same times so you have the brazos river authority and the army corps of engineers that have competing dam projects at the exact same time and i believe it's the 1960s that is problematic it is the 1960s i lied it's the 1950s but you have these competing projects they're even looking at similar sections of the river But they have very different focuses. Uh, One is on hydroelectric development, like exclusively. It is about the power. And the other one is, you know, it's about flood control. And you're not going to accomplish much when you have that kind of an overlap. And so one of the things that does make this difficult is that because the Brazos is entirely in state, it does get different treatment from long rivers like, you know, Tennessee, the Columbia, Colorado, the Susquehanna, whatever, that might be close to equal in length. There's not many rivers that are are close to as long, but you do have much more intervention from the federal government. And so you have sort of this latent state intervention and oversight that doesn't mix well in some cases. Mm -hmm. And so there is a lot of stalling and stopping. And then the climate in general changed towards dams in like 1960s, 1970s. You've got the emergent environmental movement. You've got growing ideas about or really changing ideas about ecology and ecology is growing as a science and there's just a lot of pushback and so you don't have any dam projects that are proposed and built after the 1980s. You have some dams on the Brazos River that are finished like you know 76, 79, maybe 81 but there's a lot of pushback and so As you get into the 60s and 70s, it just gets harder anyway. People begin to see there's some problems here when you build these gigantic bathtubs on our rivers because, you know, there's evaporation. There's seepage as the water seeps into soils that are oftentimes permeable. That's what, like, soils do, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, water moves through them. And when sediment builds up, you can lose 15, 20 feet in a reservoir as the soils stack up behind it. There's changes to the temperature to the oxygenation there there's all sorts of changes to what species can live there as well and so that general pushback was poorly timed as far as the brazos river was concerned Mm -hmm. because you know you have the bra established around 28 you have possum kingdom you've got the war that interrupts you come back you have the post-war prosperity you see this big push for dams and then all of a sudden, you have this interagency conflict, and the BRA is there, and the Army Corps is there, and then the Bureau shows up, and then the cities show up. And then you've got the planters, irrigationists down in Sugarland going, no, no, it's all about the rice. And then you have the you know, people up near Lubbock going, no, it's reclamation, we're out of water. I live in West Texas, I get what they mean. <laughs> we're in constant states of drought. And then you have the people in Waco going, uh, no, it's about flood control. Mm -hmm. And reconciling those kinds of competing interests, I mean, it's just, it is an unenviable task, (laughs) what any of the agencies were trying to do.
2: So are there any projects that they're trying now to kind of either help with the flood control, help with water supply, the reservoir here is big for that, or like hydroelectric, anything like that?
0: Yeah, so there is, most famously, there is a dam proposal in the Navasota area That has been on the docket for forever, (laughs) and it is still being debated. And so, you know, many rivers will have friends of society. So friends of the Brazos River, for example, and there's a friends of the Navasota River. And that one was stalled because people disagreed about the placement for it, not because people didn't agree that they needed a dam. There was just a, a different kind of disagreement. They didn't know where they wanted to put it, because that's a pretty intense question in and of itself. Where do you put this dam? Even the question of moving it upstream half a mile can have tremendous consequences. Many of our reservoirs have flooded towns, right? I mean, you have towns that just don't Mm. exist anymore because they're underwater. You have like a Friends of the Navasota River group that is still sort of actively campaigning against a dam. Now, small-scale dams, those are still built sometimes. I mean, cities will come in. Sometimes, you know, the Army Corps, the Brazos River, an agency like that will come in build a smaller scale municipal dam, you know, at the end of the city, (laughs) like downstream. But in terms of the big dams, I haven't seen any new proposals um, in a long time. And I see this fight over this one. And I kind of honestly wonder if it's going to happen anyway, despite Mm. the disagreements, because it's, to my knowledge, not fully funded. That could be wrong. I'm not up to date on this particular dam. But I mean, this is a different climate. 2019 is not... it's not even 1989, let alone 1949.
1: Of course, Waco's example of municipal dam is the low-water mm-hmm. dam that's just, just down past LaSalle. That's why we call it Lake Brazos. We don't call it the Brazos <laughs> that's River. Exactly, right? That's yeah. exactly. Yeah. If you yeah. look at
0: maps, this is Lake Brazos. And, and really, the Brazos River Authority did envision building enough dams that they would have something like 60, 70 miles of the Brazos that was fully under control, where you can basically flip a switch here— and manage the depth along that entire length, and they don't realize that, but they do realize enough control that yeah, it, it's it's considered like Lake Brazos. Mm-hmm. It, it's a river that well, we're reminded sometimes that it doesn't actually behave, but <laughs> on a daily basis seems to be controlled enough that it's it's no longer the unruly river it once was.
1: Mm-hmm. I remember being one time in Naples. This is a left turn, but. <laughs> One time, <laughs> one time I was in Naples, Italy, and I was talking to someone about Vesuvius, Mount Vesuvius. And he said, yes, we, we worry a lot about things that happen, small things that happen regularly. We don't think at all about catastrophic things <laughs> that, that don't happen very often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I, I'm thinking about, with regard to the river, with regard to flood control, maybe some of the consequences of not thinking about... Well, our thinking about this river as a, uh, as technology has mastered the river, and how does that drive different choices or thinking or approach to the river and things like that?
0: Yeah, and that's really important for people to consider because there is a tendency sometimes, and there's a lot in the environmental history literature about this. There's a tendency sometimes for us to look at our rivers and and really the landscape in general. With this idea that we really do have it fully under control. It is an organic machine at this point, to borrow you know Richard White's famous words. And it is a cog, and we are, it's a tool, and we are using it. And then we just are reminded with those catastrophic outbursts periodically, be it drought or flood. And that, that's one of the things that has really sort of hammered Waco in the Brazos River region over time, is that you'll have this tremendous flood in 1916, and then 1917 is a drought year. And the river ceases to run. And then 1918 is a flood year. And then 1919 is a drought year. And so forgetting that it's not fully reined in is is very problematic because for many cities, and and Waco is a great example of this, we're all about developing these rivers right now. And I don't mean like in the sense of locks and dams. I mean like building multi-billion dollar, you know, stadiums and, you know, arenas and river walks and you know we have a river walk here we have mclean stadium we're building up along the banks and other cities are doing the same and then you lose a steamboat restaurant and you're like oh wow this isn't (laughs) what i wanted to happen this isn't the kind of economic impact i want the river to have and so given just how much people are putting into their rivers and it's not just waco you know you see it in college station you see it in Bryan, you see it all up and down the brazos river it is at our own peril when we forget that we are not fully controlling this river, and I do not that can't be realized, I don't think. Certainly not with the technologies we have right now, and nor do I think it would be a great idea necessarily to reach that point either. And so it really is at our own risk. It is a gamble. And those small, like, frustrations, oh, the river's muddy, those we grumble about, but we do tend to forget about what's really at stake in a big sense. In fact, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I was here at the Texas Collection in... 2013, I believe, giving a talk on the Brazos River. It was basically from my book, and sort of, I hadn't written the book, I hadn't published it, rather. And I, you know, I talked, and at the end, it was the Q and A, and an older man stood up at the back, and he had a question, and he's like, "Okay, what would you say to me if I told you that I was Baylor University's biggest donor, and I wanted to build a stadium?" right there on the river (laughs) because of course McLean stadium was just a dream at this point and they were talking it and we knew that that was a potential location that's all we knew and everyone laughed and i said oh well i'd tell you to build it like a horseshoe so the water could just come in and out and then that's what they did (laughs) basically it's, it's a giant horseshoe every time i drive by that stadium i'm reminded of that conversation we ended up having about sort of the benefits to building there as a draw for people driving by, uh, for the scenes that it provides for boat tailgating, mm-hmm. boat gating, sailgating, S- sailgating, sailgating. Yes. Sail-gating. yes. I, TM. My, my lingo, mm-hmm. my lingo <laughs> is not up to date, and just the really cool things you can do there, but also the the risk mm-hmm. you take at having something literally at river level, and on a river like the Brazos.
1: In modern society, in the twenty first century we think of rivers aesthetically more than anything oh, else oh yeah
2: like how pretty is it what can i do recreationally on it you know those they have the stand up paddle boarding now you see those people on the river so that's Ab- what it's for well
0: absolutely and you know if, if you rewind 100 years or 120 years or even 70 years it was not just the aesthetics i mean yeah it was about the aesthetics but it was more like life and death and daily life and are the cows going to come this way on the chisholm trail and you know, are the stagecoaches going to stop here? And, you know, is there going to be water here and agriculture? Like, are we going to, like, have enough crops that this is going to be a a boon for our city? Because there's lots of towns that they didn't, experience the growth that Waco did they like stayed small or they disappeared entirely it it was a very real sort of life and death in an urban sense for this city and no we don't think of it that way at all your comment about this being aesthetic is right on because in the late 90s it might have been early thousands I found this great newspaper article the year doesn't even matter except that it's recent history and it was the Waco trib and it was just complaining about the river. And how, you know, your margaritas just don't taste as good (laughs) 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 when the lake has dried up and is a puddle. And there was another article around the same time that compared the Brazos to a boil on someone's nose. (laughs) As soon as you think this thing is looking the way it's supposed to, it goes and it does something to just embarrass you. And so this aesthetics, it is aesthetic. We want it to not be muddy. We don't want it to, like hurt people if they fall in you know all those baylor students have heard the rumors right about Mm -hmm. what happens if you fall in the brazos river and you want it to be pretty you want it to be blue you want it to be moving and you don't want it to be too low because then you have all the ugly water stains but you don't want it to be too high Mm -hmm. you want it to be a bathtub, yeah. not even a lake. You want it to be a bathtub where you can control <laughs> the level, absolutely.
2: That's right. Yeah, not too low and not, not too stinky
1: on a hot day
0: oh, sometimes. Oh, yes. That's yes. something, too. <laughs> yeah.
1: you, you talked about driving by the stadium, and as an environmental historian, how you look at that. Can you enjoy a river? Can you go out on a river and enjoy a river? Are you thinking about all these layers of cultural, environmental... Considerations that are going yeah, on. Yeah, I'm,
0: I'm an onion. I just peel back the annoying layer if I want to go enjoy it. I love <laughs> going out. I, I don't go too much right now. I'm in West Texas, so our interactions with rivers and watersheds are very, very yeah, different. Yeah. Um we're in you can't
1: kayak in the aquifer. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Um, although people do kayak all the time on the Concho, and so I, I grew up though going out on the canoe with my family periodically. Going out on the boat, and I really do love going out. But it is also hard for me to escape the um, intellectual, academic side of me that looks and goes, "Oh, wow, well, we're we're only here at this particular elevation and in this particular place because of those dams." And I don't know, well, those dams a good thing? Well, they've got good things. <laughs> so it's it's definitely a mixed bag because those like the dams, for example, they've done a lot of good. Mm. They really have. They they've brought some real meaningful control. And, you know, floods, they impacted unevenly. I mean, everyone was impacted by those floods, but it wasn't felt evenly. Poor and minority Wacoans were far more likely to be impacted by these floods because they were far more likely to live in the low-lying areas, especially in East Waco, that, you know, didn't get the protection of those higher banks. And so those dams, they they really are important for preserving to some extent (laughs) where you can settle, but they do have problems um, Mm -hmm. as well. And that's true of most things, um, that it's usually a nice, muddy, sort of gray overlap where you, you have to just sort of balance the good and the bad. So I just try to turn off that part of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: yeah. uh, I, I do want to ask, you talk about Navasota downstream, but upstream, were there any major dam sites that were thought about or planned that weren't executed?
0: yeah, so one of the I you, don't, can't,
1: you can't always want to know what's going on upriver.
0: you do. <laughs> yeah. um the Brazos does not begin here. It just feels like it was like epicenter of the Brazos here. Um, upstream, you have a lot of conflict, um in part because you're getting into the ranching areas. Anytime you're going to build a dam, it, it is going to flood some land. And you do have a lot of conflict upstream from people whose whose ranch lands are are flooded, whose towns are flooded. And, and you have disagreements as well about the site. Most of those dams are still built or they're defeated for other reasons. Really one of the big, big things that is going to frustrate people upstream is one, uh, the salinity. You get some brackish, brackish water upstream, especially on the like, you know, forks um, of the mm-hmm. Brazos River up there when they, when it forms. And then also it's a water scarcity types of situation. They've got water famine Down here, it's Water Feast. There is constant sort of grumbling along the different links of the river um, from people up towards Lubbock who think they're being ignored because the dams aren't helping them. Flood control is not their concern. Now they get flooded too. Those flash floods are a real problem. The rains hit and just boom, everything's underwater. But it's not the same kind of flooding issue. And so you're going to see a lot of sort of grumblings and complaints in local newspapers of people going, oh, we're being ignored altogether. Those dams don't help us, they're all downstream. And Mm -hmm. so you don't have nearly the number of dam proposals upstream. They're almost entirely, not exclusively, but the vast majority of dams are proposed on the middle Brazos River, Mm kind of Navasota to about Possum Kingdom. And you do have some further north, further upstream. They tend to be a little bit smaller. You have some downstream. But most of the dam, at least the big dam proposals, they're in that center section because it's where you get the best sort of combination of the right kind of soils, the right kind of bedrock, the right kind of flood control needs. Also, some bigger cities. It's settled earlier, right? People are moving up into the panhandle in the west a little bit later. So you've had greater social pressure for longer periods of time. And you can't underplay someone like Pogue congressman poe coming in here and being an advocate for waco and for this section of the brazos river because honestly downstream they grumble just as much oh we're being forgotten too Mm -hmm. um it's the middle section now the truth is the middle section grumbles too waco grumbles (laughs) everyone grumbles (laughs) at some point (laughs) because you can't always be fixating (laughs) on the one thing they want in a river that is as long and as diverse as the brazos
1: it's also grumbling about releases and timing of releases and different groups that want releases for different reasons. From, from the Absolutely.
0: You will have times when there will be homes that are flooded because of the releases and not because of the initial floods. Or you'll have homes, or Baylor University flooded in 1989, not because of the initial flood, but because of the drainage system. That's still a flood. You know, that Mm -hmm. is still disruptive. There's some great pictures at the Texas collection of, like, cars floating (laughs) in, like, the Baylor campus (laughs) and cars submerged. And that wasn't the river. That was, like, the drainage systems. But you will have problems where the dams themselves, the drainage systems themselves, create problems in alleviating something else. And that's still a hardship. And that can sometimes be the type of hardship that is harder for people to accept. Because, okay, you can accept that a, you know, there's a flood so bad that Possum Kingdom's not going to work. it's an act work. of God, exactly. you can
1: accept it a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, you know. it's an administrative decision. Exactly. Yeah.
0: But if someone's going to build a dam and then choose not to use it in a way that benefits you, at least that's the perception, then... That can cause a lot of frustration from people who are like, well, why did we spend, you know, $100 million or whatever it was at the time, mm-hmm. um, accounted for inflation or whatnot, throw out a number, um, to build this gigantic ugly, for some people, big ugly structures that disrupt my paddling and don't even keep me safe. But at the same time, you no longer tend to see articles about houses floating down the river. And you used to see that. Here's a house floating down a river with a man and a chicken sitting on the top. That was a real headline. (laughs) Here is a picture of the railroad bridge floating down the river. And that does still happen sometimes, but you don't see those kinds of headlines as often.
2: So I have a question of ignorance again. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and my parents live on Keystone Lake that dams up the Arkansas. And it's a good, you know, 40-minute drive to their house, and they live right on the lake. Is... Waco kind of unique in the fact that the lake is so close to the city. I mean, I'm my my house is in Waco proper and I can walk 5 minutes and see the lake. So it's right there.
0: Yeah, there certainly are other cities like that. I live in San Angelo and we have a lake. It's smaller. I mean, than than some lakes like Nasworthy So Waco's not totally alone in that, but obviously there are some considerations anytime you're going to like plug up a lake right in the middle of a city because you are always adding an element of risk there, that if your reservoir backs up for some reason, or if it dries up too much, because dried up reservoirs are are ugly, they're a blight, and they are a cause of questioning and doubt and skepticism for a lot of people. So. If you are building it around the lake and then your lake doesn't work out, you run the risk of your city declining. Mm -hmm. But in the case of, you know, Lake Waco, it predates, you know, most of the dams anyway. And so the big deal there is it's expanded. Yeah. Um, It will be expanded later on at the same time that you see all of this sort of push for dam building. Although there is a connection between Waco and the Arkansas River. Is there? There is. Uh, 1960s, 1970s. You still have some of the dam projects, but you are seeing Texans and lawmakers beginning to accept the idea that a state as big and as diverse as Texas is not going to be solved on like the watershed level. And so you start seeing what were called diversion and importation schemes. So Water Inc., you know, Operation Southwest, uh, George Mahon, um up out of the Lubbock area uh, or that general panhandle area and so with these schemes the idea was to divert water from there were multiple schemes in one case it was the missouri river in one case it was the mississippi and in one proposal it was the arkansas river and so you take the water out of those bigger rivers you you know lay down pipes you lay down canals you pass it through east texas gather more water out of our rivers And then you have to move it uphill, but you move it uphill (laughs) to West Texas to the people in towns like San Angelo or Lubbock who have water scarcity issues. And so you did see a number of these proposals that were intended to be much grander and much more aggressive. Not a Band-Aid on our water issues. This was kind of meant to be like a surgery. Mm -hmm. I mean, like rearranging the topography. I mean, you're laying hundreds of miles of concrete-lined canals in these proposals. And people in the Mississippi weren't necessarily happy about it. People along the Arkansas weren't necessarily happy. People in East Texas didn't feel like they necessarily had the water to give up. So these proposals, they they generally remain theoretical. Hmm. But you do have proposals to divert water from the Arkansas that has just way too much. The Bureau, for example, they're gonna measure how much water comes out at the end of these rivers, and oh, the Mississippi's still pouring. Hmm. We're good, we can take some of that water.
2: Well, since we've connected the two, I was kind of thinking that Tulsa is a really bad example of how to manage your river <laughs> because several months out of the year, it's like, I think it, you know, when you look at the width of it through the city, it's probably like twice as wide as the Brazos, but it's pretty dry a lot of the year. And it's kind of like depressing. And we were kind of <laughs> talking about that with, with Joe Alderman about how like a nice full river makes you feel good. And that, you know, Waco figured that out, like the, the right width and the right amount so that it looks pretty good most of the year.
0: Yeah, they really did. It's There's something meaningful about just the width and the depth and like you said, the aesthetics of it. And so the Brazos River is much narrower and much more erratic and ephemeral. Once you get up into the panhandle, there are places where it kind of disappears and it becomes a true ephemeral desert stream where it's, it's there sometimes and it's not there other times and it disappears underground and then it reemerges. And once you get down to the coast, it's all swampy, right? And it, it's got these sort of ambiguous floodplains, and what is river, and what is swamp, and where's the bank, and is it going to cave out from under me? And, you know, there's an alligator, and ooh. <laughs> but up here in this section, you've got a nice width, you've got a nice sort of depth, you've got stream banks that are a little more stable, you've got some of the nice bedrock on the west side, if that's what you want, and, yeah, Waco figured that out. I mean, they've, they've really been trying to take advantage of that for a long time, and that's to their credit. Um, you know, and East Waco, obviously, is going to suffer for a while, especially after the tornado. And there's some recent efforts, right, at revitalization. But, you know, once upon a time, you had some tremendous growth on East Waco and Bridge Street and Elm Street. And, you know, in, in part, that's because people were trying to intentionally use and then bridge. You can't have it be, you know, totally disconnected. This river that they saw as an aesthetic and a political and an economic boon.
1: All right. That seems like a good place to stop. What do you think? Yeah. so Sorry, stop. <laughs> if I want to pick up your book, what's the best place to find it? It's a University of New Mexico Press book. Oh, okay. So this is a legit book. <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, so I went to the people that have a lot of familiarity with, like, too little water <laughs> in their state. Yeah. like, yeah come talk to me about having too much water (laughs) Um, but it's available through the press it's available as well at amazon barnes and noble various smaller bookstores for a while the baylor bookstore had i don't know if they still do but i know it's available on amazon because i recently bought a copy for a family member
2: (laughs) (laughs) unruly waters looks very interesting Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.